Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there is nothing like it. The arrival of the life-saving message of salvation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, in place after place, among people after people, in community after community, and you and I are privileged to be part of the last lap of God's redemptive race. <clears throat> are you enjoying the celebration thus far? Yes. <laughs> and you know what? You know what? This is far bigger than just CIU. This is about hundreds of millions of worshipers and an incredible, incredible gathering that we're going to be enjoying as we heard this morning from the scriptures. Sooner than you think, and the thought occurred to me even this morning, you know what? A couple of people have commented, what will the next hundred years of CIU's impact be like? And I'm thinking to myself, this may be the final big anniversary celebration. Because by the time we get to 125 or 150, it's quite possible the Lord Jesus will have returned. And the task that the Lord Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago will have been completed. There is an end in sight. We don't know when it's going to be. But there's going to be a, a point where the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and where the last name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then, boy, things are going to start moving into to high speed, and it's going to be phenomenal. And we're going to look back and say, wow, if I had known, if I had only known, imagine how I might have reorganized my life. And then we're going to think to ourselves, but I did know. I did know that this was coming. And so we have an opportunity now at this stage of our lives to align ourselves with the big picture of what Jesus has made known to us in his word in the scriptures. The big, the big thing that's happening in the world today, and guess what? The biggest thing happening in the world today is not the upcoming election. It's not the contest between superpowers. It's not even the war happening in Ukraine. As significant as these and many other things are, the biggest thing happening in the world today is that this gospel of the kingdom is being preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end is going to come, and we are going to be a part of it. Every single one of us are going to be a part of that. <clears throat> Don't lose perspective. There's all kinds of forces trying to pull us in one direction or another and get our eyes off the ball. But keep our eyes on the ball of what Jesus said to his disciples we need to be doing between the time when he ascended into heaven and the time when he will come back at the trumpet call as well. So, great to be here, and Arlene and I are just thrilled. It's like a super honor. It just seems like yesterday I was sitting here. We were both here as students and occasionally helping lead a missions chapel. And uh, just, it's just a huge honor and joy and privilege to be here for this, this momentous occasion. But Dr. Smith asked if I would just share a little bit of our personal story like others have been doing. And so let's go back in time to my first... Well, let's say this. My, my mom and dad met at another school like CIU. Isn't that something that happens a lot at places like this? And they were up in the snowy plains of Alberta at 
Prairie Bible Institute, it was called, and my dad was tasked with preparing a map for one of their missions events, and he noticed there were very few missionaries at that time in this part of the world's second largest island called New Guinea. And he wrote, uh, only he knew that he wrote these words, over the southern swamps of the island of New Guinea, will these swamps ever ring with the praises of Christ? And then kind of forgot about it. And he had visions of going to the island of Java where there were millions and millions of people and seeing tons of people come to Christ. But long story short, dad and mom stepped out, they got married, they joined an agency. And uh, they carried me kicking and screaming onto onto a ship. This was my first overseas mission trip (laughs) at the ripe old age of six months. And we ended up in the highlands of New Guinea and got off. And a few of my parents' classmates that had preceded them into the highlands of what was then called Netherlands, New Guinea, later called Erie and Jaya and Papua, they said, hey, we've just heard about this tribe down in the southern swamps. It's not nice and cool like it is up here in the highlands. There's lots of mosquitoes, tons of rain. They're probably cannibals. They live in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp. Would you be happy to take the gospel to them? I like to think that mom and dad at least glanced at me momentarily (laughs) before answering, yes, we'd love to take the gospel to the Sawi. That's the kind of thing that we've come here to do. So dad went in with another missionary who'd just been there for a short time with an organization, uh, actually with the same agency, and his name was John McCain. And they went and made one of the first contacts with some Sawi warriors at the junction of two rivers and using the sign language, just got their help to build a little house and then tried to explain, I'm going to come back in about 10 days' time with my wife and my little baby. We want to live here. Would you be willing to move out of the jungle and live near us? Wasn't sure if they understood, but sure enough, 10 days later, after several courageous paddlers from an enemy tribe, the Kaigar tribe, paddled us from sunrise until sundown, and this is a slide that my mother took, or my father took from back in the canoe during that all day of traveling in the canoe, we rounded the last bend. And guess what? They had understood. (laughs) There were 400 Sawi warriors just armed to the teeth waiting to welcome us. And uh, dad and mom could see their bird of paradise headdresses silhouetted against the setting sun. And they turned to each other. Here's, here's another slide, mildewed from decades in the tropics, but you can see the spears pointing heavenward. As if to say, it's too late now, we're committed. And they prayed a, a final prayer that canoe slid to a stop. In the mud, at the feet of this throng, there were no women or children visible because they were all hiding in the jungle waiting what was, to see what was going to happen when these extraterrestrials made their landing there on the riverbank. Dad reached over and picked me up out of Mom's arms, not knowing that in the Sawi culture, if a man from the outside came with no weapons in his hands, carrying a baby, it was a sign that he was coming with no harmful, no ulterior motives, no harmful intentions, and was coming in peace. And so he made his way up, and and they just started to relax. One of the chiefs shouted, Asa, and these long drums that some of them were holding started to boom, boom, boom. And they began dancing around us. Later, Dad described it as if we were at the eye of a human hurricane. The women and children started materializing out of the jungle. And then they danced around that little house, 
If you look carefully, you can see me there on the porch for four days, three days and three nights without stopping. Boom, 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 chanting and dancing. It was our baptism into the world of the Sawi, and it was a strange world indeed. And there we were. That's where I grew up in Orlando, where we live now. We have Disney World and Universal Studios and SeaWorld. There we had the little white baby being bathed. <laughs> People came from miles around through the jungle to see the spectacle. And in this picture, I'm the one on the left. <laughs> and <laughs> if you feel sorry for missionary kids, feel sorry no longer. I'm obviously very well fed there. <clears throat> being raised on a wonderful diet of crocodile meat and termites and beetle grubs. This is the mid-sized variety. There's different varieties. The really huge ones, six, months, six, six inches long, are really gross. On this particular day, it looks like I was especially hungry. I was just really popping them. It's a little bit like biting into the Michelin man, you know? Penetrating that rubbery exterior and all this cholesterol-filled juice just spurts out into your mouth, and you're just like... You get on a brief high, you know, as you're <laughs> eating these grubs. But it wasn't just their diet. Mom and Dad found that, sure enough, the Sawi were both cannibals and headhunters, and they lived in, in terror of one another. The reason they lived in tree houses wasn't just because of the rain. It wasn't just because there's more, more, fewer mosquitoes, you know, at that higher altitude. It was because... They wanted to be safe from their enemies, and they were safer up in the trees. And if somebody tried to climb up during the, the night, they would have the advantage of altitude. They could tell someone where they could shoot from above and so forth. But maybe most shocking of all was the realization as dad and mom learned the language well enough to begin explaining the gospel message. Uh, dad was in the man house, the certain house lower, closer to the ground where only the warriors uh, the men were allowed to go in. They would plan hunting raids and various uh, uh, forays into enemy territory and so forth. And Dad began explaining the gospel story, and it came to the part of the gospel where Jesus was betrayed by one of his friends named Judas. And there was a ripple of laughter in the crowd there, and Dad was surprised, and a man in the back said, Tell us more about Judas. Dad said, You mean Jesus? He said, No, Judas, he sounds like one of us. Didn't you just say he betrayed his friend to death? We do that all the time. Dad realized he had a cross-cultural communication problem on his hands. They thought Judas was the hero of the story. Mahine said, I'd love to promise my daughter in marriage to a man like Judas. And come to find out over the centuries, they'd had this practice of befriending warriors if they encountered them in the jungle, unsuspecting and winning their trust over time, inviting them to different feasts, only to eventually cannibalize those people at the moment at, the, at, at some sort of feast. And dad and mom went to prayer. What else could they do? My brother and I were growing up, and at, at this time, the, these four Sawi villages moved in around us because they wanted to be close to us, but they didn't want to be close to each other. They started fighting with each other. Mom counted 14 major battles just in the first few weeks, and they fought in our front yard because there was nowhere else to fight. The rest was jungle, but our front yard was prime fighting ground. And finally, my dad said to the Sawi warriors, I don't know how you can make peace in a treachery idealizing culture, but if you don't make peace, then Carol and I are going to move away to some other place that wants to hear the message that we've come to bring. And they realized dad was serious. 
Dad didn't know it, but that night, several of the elders in the village of Kamor over here were meeting during the night, and the next morning, Dad was studying language with his language helper, a man that I remember named Adi, and he heard a terrible noise. And he thought, I'm going to have to go out and start breaking bows and arrows again and spears and trying to restore order and peace like I'd seen him do so on so many occasions. But this time, as he ran out to see what the commotion was all about, he didn't see people running for their weapons. Instead, he saw a father grabbing his little newborn boy from his wife's arms and running over the logs and through the mud a couple of hundred yards from the village of Kainam, Haina, uh, Kamur over to the enemy village of Hainam. And then, with tears streaming down his cheeks, he gave that child to the enemy over there in Hainam. Dad turned to Adi and said, Adi, what's happening? Tell me, what's going on? Adi said, you've been telling us we have to make peace, right? And Dad said, yes. He said, well, I don't know what it's like where you come from. Maybe your people never fight with each other, but we saw we, we fight all the time. And the only way we can make peace and convince our enemies that we're serious about it is if we actually give one of our own baby boys to the enemy. And Dad paused and let that sink in, and he said, are they going to hurt that little boy? And he said, no, no, they'll take really good care of him. He'll be adopted in their family, and in fact, they're deciding now which of their families is going to give a return peace child back to the first village. And the peace will last as long as those two peace boys live, because the peace hinges on their lives. Dad went back. My mom had been watching from our porch, and the dad relayed what Adi had been telling him, and just thinking, this is the strangest thing we've ever heard. And then mom said, strange, but strangely familiar. Two parties at war, one party wanting so desperately to establish peace and to be reconciled that he's willing to actually give his only son, as this Sawi father had just done. His wife had said, why us? There's other people who have more children. This is our only child, our firstborn. And yet he had made that sacrifice. And dad said, you're right, Carol. And they went to prayer, learned a few words uh, to explain this a little more clearly. And then my dad went back to that same man house. Just probably a week or so later, feeling a little bit equipped to give this another try. And this time he added a detail to the story. He described Jesus as Myakodon's Tarot team, our creator's peace child. And this time there was no laughter, there was no backslapping. This time that same man said, wait a minute, Tuan Don, didn't you tell us he was betrayed by his friend named Judas? And dad said, yes. He said, are you saying Judas betrayed a peace child? And dad said, yes. He said, why didn't you tell us that the first time? <laughs> dad said, I didn't realize that was an important detail. Mahine said, important, it makes all the difference in the world. You cannot betray a peace child. It's the worst thing anybody can do. It's called tarab gaman. Shredding the peace, the ultimate sin. And you could almost see the scales, the spiritual scales falling from the eyes of these Sawi warriors through the smoke of their fireplaces in that manhouse. And it was just a few nights later that Hato came to my dad, maybe a little bit like Nicodemus came to Jesus, and said to my dad, he said, you've been telling us, Tuan, about Myakodon's Tarop team, we saw we, when, when we give a peace child, the receiving village has a ceremony and all the men of the village gather around. And by, one by one, the men of that village will place their, their hand on this little baby and one by one, those fathers will say, I accept this baby as a basis for peace between us and the enemy. 
I want to do that to Miyako Don's Taro team. Can you tell him for me? And my dad had that eternal privilege of saying, Hato. Hato had said, your words make my liver quiver. <laughs> they didn't talk about hearts in the Sawi culture. They talked about the liver. And my dad said, your liver is quivering because your creator, the spirit of God, is speaking to you. And you don't need me to speak to him on your behalf. You can pray, you can talk to Miyakodon, and you can ask him to be your ultimate peace child, and you will be reconciled for eternity to your creator. And Hathof said, I want to do that. He said, my four wives and all our children want to do it too. <laughs> and my dad said, bring your whole family, and they became, they became the first fruits of a growing harvest among this tribe of 3,000 people who had been isolated from the gospel message for who knows how many eons. And I had the privilege of growing up there until I was about 15 years of age with a front row seat to the reality of Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, but then for all the Gentiles, for all the nations of the world. And I just was overwhelmed with a sense, over time, a huge, huge percentage of the Sawi embraced Jesus as their Tarop team. And everybody knew who the believers were and who the non-believers were. There was no question about who, who was in what camp. There was none of this kind of, you know, moderate type, you know, neutral ground in terms of people's acceptance or rejection of the message that had come. And the Sawi said, we want to build our own worship center. And they ended up building what was probably to this day one of the largest structures ever made out of thatch and natural materials without nails. And it was 70 feet high, about seven stories high or more. And as a kid, I used to climb up that vine ladder in the middle. It could seat 1,100 Sawi worshipers. A third of the tribe could fit in that cathedral. We called it the Sawi Dome. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so it was just phenomenal. And the Sawi, the Sawi story is just one story among literally thousands of stories that are being written all around the world. So many people aren't even aware. They're kind of blind to the huge thing that is happening in our time, that the gospel is advancing with great strides all over the world. That's how we ended up, <clears throat> they had been fighting for who knows how many centuries with the Osmot, a few miles this direction, and the Aoyu, a few miles that direction, and with the Kaigar, a few miles this direction, and with the Atoheim, a few, I, there was an Atoheim village right near us, and I didn't speak their language, and the closest language was about like, like Dutch is to English, even though they, they lived like three or four or five miles apart in the jungle. But you know, these five tribes that used to try to eliminate one another formed an alliance to take the gospel message to yet other groups that still hadn't had an opportunity to hear the gospel message. <laughs> Many years later, Arlene and I were in Emmaus, a few miles outside Jerusalem, and we were at a Scandinavian guest house there. And when we shared a little bit about our background, they said, oh, we just had a group from Papua here. 
And it was from the very denomination that the Sawi ended up forming and joining with dozens of other tribes. And they had sent a delegation all the way to Jerusalem to find out, what is this really like? Is all this? And they had been to Emmaus to see where the disciples had been on that journey where Jesus had said to them, how slow of heart you are and how foolish, not understanding what the prophets have been saying from the beginning, that this gospel of the kingdom will need to be preached to the whole world. So that's our background, and we realized that God had planted a key in their culture. And it was such a privilege. They needed to hear the gospel. The messenger was needed, just like we heard last night. It's not just angels. No, God said to Abraham 4,000 years ago, through you all nations on earth will be blessed. He has restricted himself to the Abrahamic franchise, which means he has taken a huge risk, and he has deliberately restricted himself to your participation and my participation in his redemptive plan by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's why we have such a great privilege to respond and say, yes, I want to be a part. Lord, send me. Lord, use me. We realized in some of the other tribes there were similar, what, what Dad called redemptive analogies. The Osmot had a peacemaking ceremony that was basically a new birth ceremony. The Dani up in the highlands had been waiting for centuries for someone who would be bringing the news of Nabalan Kabbalan, new birth, like the snake sheds its skin and starts life all over again. They said, centuries ago, our forefathers listened to the bird instead of the snake, and we lost eternal life. But someday a messenger is going to come and bring us the message so that we can, can obtain eternal life once again. There was another tribe called the Yali, that had places of refuge. And in the midst of all their warfare, if a man was being chased by his enemies and was able to make it into one of these few circles of stone up and down the, the, the valley on either side of the river, he could, he could get in there and his enemies would lower their, their weapons and just turn around and walk away. Does that sound familiar to you? Places of refuge on either side of the Jordan River? Jesus Christ is our ultimate refuge. So the question is not, has, gone, has God not gone before us? The question is not, do we not have the Holy Spirit? The question is, where are the laborers? And you know, we've been praying for centuries the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. But too often in the history of the church, we've forgotten the other Lord's Prayer, that God, that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out, ekbalo, laborers into his harvest. Imagine if millions of churches over the centuries had been praying that Lord's Prayer as well. Lord, raise up laborers for the harvest. And I pray that more and more churches and more and more believers will make that a core part of their own life and calling as well. So fast forward, <laughs> when I was um, about 10, we were on one of our home assignments and our family went to a camp on uh, a remote part of the island of uh, Vancouver Island in Canada, where my father's from. I was born in Canada. And uh, I had to get in by airplane. There was no roads going there. And there was a family camp. And I remember on the final night of that service, uh, of that camp, my dad gave the final challenge. He'd been speaking all week. And he said, is there anybody tonight who is sensing that God is touching you in a special way and calling you to be uh, one of his instruments to take the gospel message to uh, some group around the world that needs to hear it for the first time. And I remember the Holy Spirit just grabbing me so powerfully. I became oblivious to everything else that was happening there in that, in that lodge. 
And there are probably a couple of hundred people there. And my, I remember my dad's voice ringing out, my own son has been the first to stand to his feet. Will there be any others? And honestly, I don't know if there were any others because I was just so caught up in the sense that God had a special mission, a tiny but significant and important role for me to play in the grand drama of the love of God in Jesus being conveyed to the nations and the peoples of the world. And I just couldn't get away from that sense of calling as a 10-year-old. And <laughs> fast forward, our, our family came back to, to the US after quite a few more years out there in New Guinea and uh, came to Canada and then down to Pasadena, California. And as I finished high school, this sense of God's pull and his call on my life was just as strong as, as it had ever been. I had just decided, you know what? I'm going to move through every open door that God opens, and if he wants to close doors, he can close them, and I'm just going to keep moving uh, through any open door. And so it came time to decide what college to go to, and uh, I, the question in my mind was, what's the best place? And I asked my dad, I said, I said, Dad, you've been traveling and speaking at all kinds of Christian institutions all over North America. And I need a launching pad for my personal involvement in missions. Where, where do you recommend? And he said, you know, I could have said Prairie Bible Institute where I came from or some of these other fantastic places that I've been speaking at. But I was surprised when my dad said, you know what? I've been a couple of times to a place called Columbia Bible College and it's just an amazing place. He said, there's a special spirit there. And there's just a passion for the mission of God around the world. And I thought to myself, you know what? Okay, I'll do it. I had known a few missionaries with another organization named Team out there in the jungles of Papua, and they were just gung-ho Marines, you know, missionary Marines. And I thought, okay, I'm going to pack my little 1974 bubble of a car, my 1974 Honda Civic. And I drove from Pasadena down to around Disneyland there and picked up one other student from California. And we drove the 55 hours across the states. And I remember arriving here on this campus. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is an amazing place. I felt like I was in heaven for several weeks when I first arrived here. And you know, there's an amazing thing. We have, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm hoping, I'm trusting that all of our names in this auditorium tonight are already written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the fundamental family adoption reality that gives us commonality and makes us feel at home with one another so fast. But you know, there's another element, another dimension that is really, really special, and that is not just people who've been saved, but people who are on mission with the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are willing to give their all in order for the glory of the one who gave his all for us. And when, when, when we're together and on a campus like this with other young men and women who are saying, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptations of some of these other uh, pulls. And I'm going to just pursue God's call and will for my life, whatever shape that takes to see his love communicated globally through all the talents and gifts that he's given me. There's an amazing, amazing bond that happens. And so here at CIU, I, I had this launching pad down in Orlando, you know, over at Cape Kennedy. We have about 40 launches, I think, a year. 
And uh, here, CIU is a launching pad for gospel emissaries all across the US, across North America and all around the world as evidenced by all these flags here. So here I learned, I deepened my, my, my skills in leadership. I remember how nervous I was up here in front leading missions, chapels, and so forth. But I, I determined no matter how scared I was, I was going to keep staying outside my comfort zone and keep doing things that, that uh, made me trust in God and rely by faith on Him. I remember learning how to handle God's Word better. I remember uh, I, was, I was chosen, I was chosen the, uh, the freshman class president. I'm not sure why. I mean, how do you choose a class president when nobody knows anybody? <clears throat> and after the first chapel, we had a class chapel, and I gave a devotional, and then Dr. Johnny Miller asked, you know, he was our advi class advisor, and, and he said, uh, can we have lunch together? I said, wow, what an honor, yes. And so we had lunch, and at some point, he cleared his throat and said, Steve, that was a great devotional you gave. I said, thank you, thank you, Dr. Miller. And he said, I'm just wondering, how did you find those thoughts in that passage? <laughs> I had a whole hermeneutics course right there over lunch. It was just amazing. I learned about ministry, you know, going to the prisons and sharing and downtown and organizing what we called global outreach conferences. And God prepared me for marriage. You see, when I'd been a senior in high school, my dad came home from one of his trips and walked in the door after being away for three weeks. And he said, Steve, I found a young lady that I think would be perfect for you. And I was a little taken aback. Can you imagine? But he had piqued my interest, and I said, so, uh, Dad, isn't that a little presumptuous? He said, I'm telling you, she's beautiful. I said, where is she? She's in Washington, D.C. Here I'm in Pasadena, California. And finally, he convinced me, at least write her a letter. So I got a, a, a page of my, my dad's Institute of Tribal People Studies stationery out <laughs> with all these fierce-looking heads, and I wrote Arlene a letter. And I thought, if she responds positively to this, that'll be a good indication. And she did, so we became pen pals. Now, I don't know, you don't know what a pen pal is. It's an early version of social media. <laughs> early version of Instagram, you know. And uh, so Arlene and I, and I would go down here to the mailbox, and my, my box was 0675, looking for letters from Arlene. And she just wrote so many letters. We have all those letters still in our family archives today. And, you know, a, a year or so ago, the alumni team put out word that you could, you could actually claim one of these mailboxes. So our daughters heard about this, and they claimed our mailbox and gave it to Arlene and me for Christmas because it had so much, so much meaning packed into it. So God brought us together. I convinced Arlene to come down here and to study at CIU as well. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun here at CIU. There was an occasion where... I was out jogging on one of these trails down here by Broad River, and I came across uh, a copperhead sunbathing, you know, on the, on the trail. And so I, I found a stick, and I clubbed it and killed it and took it back. <laughs> and somebody in the dorm had a Bunsen burner. So I, I cut the snake in half and cooked half of it and ate it. And then I rolled up the other half, and I put it in the freezer, the freezer in the, the fridge at the end of the hall. <laughs> After about three weeks, somebody made an announcement. Whoever left their snake in the freezer, <laughs> it's starting to smell. Please come and get it. <laughs> and 
And I learned, of, and God started to move in direction. We, we had a prayer group here, several of us were praying for direction, and I was getting my haircut down in here in the basement of the Memorial Dorm, and, and uh, anybody live in the, is it still called Memorial Dorm? Okay, and down in their basement, and this lady was cutting my hair, snip, snip, and there was, there, there, there was this uh, student, this guy named Mike, Mike Dixon, and I knew he was from Indonesia, and I'd been reading and praying about this large unreached people group called the Sundanese, and I said, Mike, have you, have you heard, ever heard of the Sundanese? And he said, yep, snip, snip. <laughs> I, I said, have you ever seen any of them? He said, yep, snip, snip. <laughs> and I began to realize this guy's a man of few words. <laughs> I said, I, said, I said, can you tell me anything about them? He said, yeah, my parents have been working there almost, almost alone. There's 30 million of them. That's where I grew up. And they desperately need people to work there. And it was just like things started to fall in place. And four of us couples here who had been praying together, we formed a team. And then the other students from CIU started to go with us. And we, uh, <coughs> we made, made plans to go. And it was just amazing what the Lord did. And we ended up arriving there in 1986. And God opened up all kinds of doors of opportunity. And here it was, you know, 30,000 mosques and 30 million people. And Arlene and I moved into a densely packed Sundanese community. The island of Java has about 150 million people. You could take the entire population of the eastern seaboard of the U.S. from all the way up Baltimore down through New York and through... Washington, D.C., and all the way down the coast, all those states through Atlanta, all the way down to Miami, all those states bordering on the, uh, on, on the coast there, and put all those people in North Carolina and add 104 active volcanoes for good measure. And you've got a picture of the island of Java. There are three times as many people living on the island of Java as there were in the Roman Empire in the time of the Apostle Paul. And so that, the, 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 Sundanese, the ministry among the Sundanese took off, and uh, there's so many incredible stories. Uh, for example, <clears throat> my wife uh, opened a, a care package from some elderly quilting ladies in North Carolina. They called themselves uh, the Senders. And they had quilted, they had stitched together three quilts from Arlene's grandmother's antique shop. Uh, cloth that Arlene had saved after her grandmother passed away in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. And these three quilts came out, and Arlene's friend, Dewi, who had been divorced by her husband, uh, was jobless and desperate, said, oh, these are so beautiful. Can you teach me how to, how to make a quilt like this? And, and Arlene said, well, I love to sew, but I've never made a quilt. So she started trying to teach her. They went out, bought some cloth, and they, we went back to her village and then came back a couple of weeks later and they had a beautiful, beautiful quilt, amazing what they were able to produce. And said, can we do more of these? And so, <clears throat> sure, right here in our home. And after a while, we had 40 people working in our living room. All these relatives and other people started coming and one guy named Dadang, he got so excited. He said, one night, he said, can I keep stitching tonight? And Arlene Ibulina said, said, well, Steve and I are going to go to bed, but you can keep, keep sewing in the shed back here if you want to. The next morning, he had a quilt three times the size of a king-size quilt. <laughs> and when all the other workers came back to our house early the next morning, they all started to laugh and say, Dadang, what happened? And Dadang said, Ibulina taught me how to start, but she never taught me how to stop. <laughs> They call it the village quilt. They said the whole village can sleep under this thing. 
But people started coming to Christ, and we started sharing. We translated the, the Jesus film and started a magazine in, in their language and all kinds of things. And eventually, we had a team of about 45 adults and at least as many kids. And a lot of them were from CIU. In fact, CIU has produced much of the leadership for uh, our ministries around the world, as uh, was mentioned earlier, impacting 500 at least people groups all around the world. And you know, the irony of that story, she eventually, Dewi eventually came to Christ after seven years. And you know, you know how she came to Christ? There was another Sunda woman who uh, showed her the, the scars on her back from being beaten after she embraced faith in Jesus and the joy radiating from her face. And Dewi said, if she can have that much joy after suffering for the gospel, then I want Jesus too. And the testimony of my wife over all those years uh, bore fruit. And for years, Dede in the days when she had to pay probably a month's wages to make an international phone call would call us on the anniversary of her salvation and thank us for the fact that we'd brought the gospel uh, to them. So brothers and sisters, during our student days at CIU, we didn't know what the future held. But we trusted God and prayerfully pursued his big picture plan for our lives. I remember one student here, a friend of mine, said, you take Indonesia and I'll take India. A lot of hubris, but also some faith, also some, some sense that God was a big God who, delivered, who deserved to be honored with, with great, great vision and great plans. And God has done great things uh, over the years. It's just amazing. John 14, 12, I remember as a, a kid at boarding school memorizing John 14 out on the hillside there at the boarding school. And I remember thinking about this verse where Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And you know, I thought to myself back there as a kid at boarding school, how can anybody do anything greater? And I wonder what the disciples thought when they heard that. But the disciples didn't know about the Madurese people, 13 million, about the 8 million Minangkabau people. They didn't know about the Mandeling. They didn't know about the Mongolians and the Maori and hundreds and thousands of other people groups around the world. Greater things than these shall ye do because I'm going to the Father and sending you the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God is on the move today. The most important thing happening today is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the gospel be, be proclaimed in the whole world. And I'm just going to touch very briefly on several areas that I think God is going to be continuing <clears throat> to open doors of opportunity for you. And one is simply multiplication. This, this gospel message is being multiplied all around the world. When my parents carried me as a child, to that island with its 1,500 languages, relatively few of those languages had received the gospel. Today, relatively few of them haven't received the gospel. More than 100,000 Christians are being born every day around the world. Kenya has the highest percentage of evangelicals with 50%, and the U.S. comes in about 15th with about 28%, give or take. There are an estimated 60 million evangelicals in Brazil. Latin America, the evangelical church has grown from 700,000 in 1900 to 120 million today. 
Africa was 3% Christian, about, about 9 million people back in 1900. Today, 60%, 700 million. All around the world, the fruit of the faithfulness of God's people and churches, and I could go on and give you statistic after statistic, demonstrating that the greatest investment that anyone can make in terms of prayer and in terms of giving and in terms of sending and going and your own children and your grandchildren is to invest ourselves wholeheartedly in the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The historian, Kenneth Scott Letterett, uh, we had to read one of his books here in the grad school years ago, said, no fact of history is more amazing than the spread of the influence of Jesus. And then there's the area, not just of multiplication, but of mobilization. And I believe 505 years ago, we had the reformation, the rediscovery of the priesthood of the believer. Would that we in our time have a rediscovery of the missionhood of the believer. And this is not just for a select few, for a sort of priesthood, but all of us using our, prefer- our, our, our professions, using our, 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 our arts ability and our gifts and our creativity to be unleashed locally and globally in the task of creatively seeing the message of Christ advanced around the, gospel, around the world. My brother, Paul, was a, a teacher in a really rough part of L.A. near Watts. Loved it, was just seeing, seeing students come to Christ, but then took his career on, on the global travel and went over to Indonesia. And today, for decades now, he and Cindy have been starting Christian schools all across that archipelago, and there's dozens of schools now. And the government is sending teachers to be trained by my brother and his programs. And Muslims are, are begging to have their children be, be, be taught in these Christian schools, this network of Christian schools across the country because Paul decided to take his skills and his, his gifting and take it to unreached peoples all around the world. We have pilots flying in major airlines around the world. As someone has said earlier, this is not a matter of giving up your career necessarily. I've heard there are about five million Americans working in various countries around the world, expats. Suppose 10% of them get mobilized to actually see churches get started there. That would be a massive increase in the labor force around the world. Places like Chad with 111 unreached people groups, you can get a missionary visa. We have people traveling with the Arab-speaking nomads with their camels week after week going from oasis to oasis out there in the desert. Amazing what God is calling some of our young people to do. India, with with its 2,000 unreached people groups today, the Caucasus between the Caspian and the Black Sea, with 86 unreached people groups still today in 2022. The day of needing to take the gospel to unreached peoples is not over. Sumatra, I have a special heart for Sumatra. It's the size of California, 50 million people, more people in Sumatra than California. 80 people groups, 49 of them are basically unengaged with the gospel, almost no believers. I have a special heart because my, one of my sisters-in-law, Yesi, is from a people group, an unreached people group of 8 million, and my brother and she, three of their sons have been in the Marines with the U.S., but they live on, just off the land in a little ranch out there in the highlands of Sumatra. So there's collaboration, there's mobilization and collaboration as we benefit from the hard work that other generations have done. And now we get to empower and to equip and to resource the church all around the world and participate hand in hand 
in what I believe is the greatest year of harvest in all of history by a long shot. And I could share all kinds of illustrations about that. And then disruption. God is working because the gospel advances. The most important thing, all kinds of things happen in order to advance the gospel, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's earthquakes that happen or whether it's tsunamis that happen and so many other events that happen. The simple question is, is the body of Christ ready to collect the fruit as it's falling off the tree when God shakes the nations? And there's going to be more and more of this shaking of the nations through pandemics and all kinds of, I'm convinced, as the stakes are raised and the time grows short and the sun, the, the, the opportunity for people to be saved uh, as the night soon comes when no one can work. And then finally, I want to say that <clears throat> there's an opportunity for us coming to celebrate. And I have had the opportunity around the world to be part of incredible celebrations. Uh, like the one among the Sawi, and you'll have to go on YouTube and look up Never the Same, the clip that we saw earlier was just two minutes out of a 15-minute video of my brothers and my father and I going back. We didn't know if anybody was going to be there to welcome us, but there were 3,000 Sawi and members of these other tribes waiting to welcome us to celebrate the arrival of the gospel. And it's just an amazing, it's well worth 15 minutes of your time. And I've had thousands of people around the world watch them celebrate the arrival of the gospel. I've never heard one person say, I wish the missionaries had never come. And I've had people say, how long have your people known about this message? And you have to say 2,000 years. Why didn't they come earlier to give us this message? And so, so <clears throat> there's coming a time of tremendous celebration in heaven. So brothers and sisters, let me just conclude by asking you this question. How is your generation doing as it relates to the big picture? And maybe even more importantly and more relevantly, where are you in the Great Commission picture? Now, often when you see a picture that you know you were there when that picture was taken, what's the, one of the first things you do? You look to see where you are in the picture. And you look to see what was my part? How did I look in that picture? And brothers and sisters, uh, after my dad passed away four years ago, I was going through some of our family archives. And I noticed a birthday card that he had written to me a few years earlier, and he had written in there these simple words. He said, Stephen, your life is a strategy of God unfolding in history. Love, Dad. And I've reflected on the power of those few words. Dad was always one to appreciate density in writing and packing as much meaning as he could into a few words. And I would like to pass that word of challenge and blessing on to you tonight as well, to say that to every single one of you, brothers and sisters, some of us launching with an opportunity to set our course and our trajectory early in life, others at later stages of life, and just remind you, your life is a unique strategy of God that is unfolding in history as part of his bigger grand plan. I often carry around a little, little puzzle piece in my pocket as a reminder that my part is very small in the scheme of things. It's also very unique. Theoretically, at least, there's not another piece in the puzzle exactly that shape to fit that spot. 
but it's also significant. Have you ever gotten to the end of a, putting a puzzle together and there's one piece missing? And you start looking around and through the cushions on the couch and on the floor, where's the missing piece? Don't let your life be a missing piece in the incredible picture that God is assembling. For the glory of the Son he loves, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. God bless you and make you a blessing to the nations of the world. And can I just say in in, uh, conclusion, I brought about 100 copies of this new book that Dr. Murray mentioned. Is the commission still great? And I want to give them to the first 100 people that come up here afterward. And let's, let's not have a stampede and let anybody get hurt. But I think you'll really be blessed by some of the concepts that are shared here. Thank you for having Arlene and me here for this celebration. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.